Welcome to Cushion Disappointment. In this episode, I'm talking to myself about the comics artist Wallace Wood. Uh, this is my first attempt at doing an episode like this, so as you can imagine, there's lots of issues. Um, somehow, this is the first of the three introductions, and one of them is very self-indulgent and naff, and I thought about cutting it, but actually it kind of links to stuff later, so it has to stay in there. So honestly, just try and plough through the first five minutes. If you can get through that, I think there is some good stuff here. But um, anyway, let's just get to it. So here's the crush. In 2003, I desperately wanted to see the new superhero film, Daredevil. Um, I can't quite remember why, but there was something about the trailer that had really excited me. Um, and it seemed like a massive wait between the trailer coming out and the film being released. So finally, it's in cinemas. I remember my mum calling the cinema, being pretty excited. And I was probably dancing in the corridors. And then she came out to tell me the bad news that the film was a 15 certificate. And I, being nine years old, wouldn't be able to go. So we waited... We wait. I don't think my mum was that bothered. I waited more months, and then um, on the release, on, I think it was actually the day the DVD came out. We headed to W8 Smiths, bought the film, took it home, and watched it. Maybe it was this sense of anticipation, or the fact that I now saw this as like an adult, as a risky film that I wasn't allowed to see, um, and maybe that clouded my judgment. But after watching it, I was pretty sure I'd seen the most important film ever made. Critics and audiences alike disagreed with me as did many who made the film, who thought it was a pile of wank. Um, I was obsessed. I returned to W.H. Smith's and bought the soundtrack, which features two songs by Evanescence, obviously Bring Me to Life, and My Immortal, which, much like the film, was the most beautiful song I'd ever heard, and I decided I would have that played at my funeral. If I, well, if I die, when I die, please don't use this as a reference point and play it at my funeral. I don't want it anymore. So in the film, Ben Affleck plays Matt Murdock, a blind lawyer who fights crime dressed in a red leather devil costume. I'm pretty sure I wanted to be Daredevil. We both had the same name. That'd be Matt, not Daredevil. And um, I'm pretty sure Lectra, played by Jennifer Garner, was my first crush. She's certainly the first that I remember. There's a very, well, there's a pretty steamy sex scene in there, which um, I can't quite remember. Feeling awkward watching that with my mum, but it must have been pretty awkward. Um, the... I've watched all the DVD extras, and on that, Frank Miller talks about how he created Electra to uh, explore what superhero sex would be like. So it was clear to me that there was an erotic power contained within those characters, um, and it was probably why the actors got married. Eventually, my fascination with Daredevil could not be sated by the DVD in the film alone, so I started to read the comics. Um, so I read all the sort of the stuff that was coming out over that time. Eventually, went back and read the sort of iconic '80s run by Frank Miller. However, I never really had any desire to go further back than that to the original 60s stuff. So that was until about two years ago when I read the original issues of Daredevil. Issue one of Daredevil was released in 1964, written by Stan Lee and illustrated by Bill Everett. I've sort of done a plot synopsis here, which I think is way too long, but I'll blast through this. Please stay with me. The story begins with four men playing poker above a gym. We learn that they work for the Fixer. Daredevil shows up in a yellow and black costume, which looks a bit silly, and he beats the shit out of them. Um, at which point the story flashes back to a young Matt Murdock, it's like he's a kid, being told by his dad that he needs to study. His dad is a middle-aged, his dad isn't middle-aged, his dad is a middle-aged boxer, past his prime, and doesn't want his son to end up like him. All the other kids pick on Matt, calling him a sissy, and nickname him Daredevil. The aging Jack Murdock signs up with a fixer in order to get a fight. His villain name is obviously, he's a fixer. Um, so... Matt sees a blind man walking down the street, about to be hit by a truck carrying radioactive materials. Matt saves the man, but is blinded by a radioactive cylinder. Fortunately, this enhances Matt's other senses. He can now tell if someone is in a room by hearing their heartbeat. Never forget smell. 
determine how many bullets are in a gun by its weight, and taste the exact number of salt grains on a pretzel. A few years later, Matt's in college, the Fixer tells Jack that he needs to take a dive. Uh, Jack wants to make his son proud, so doesn't. As a result, the Fixer orders one of his henchmen to kill Jack. Matt graduates college and starts a law firm with his friend Froggy Nelson, and then decides to go after the Fixer, makes the weird yellow costume, and that's back to where we were at the beginning. Fixer arrives, there's another fight, he gets away from Matt, Matt follows, able to follow him by smelling his cigar smoke, I think. And there's a weird bit where he chases after him by jumping on a paper bin and running on it. And that sight seems so terrifying that the fixer clutches his chest and has a heart attack. Daredevil states, No pulse, no heartbeat. Seems like a heart attack will save the state the expense of a trial. Um, which is either pretty funny or terrifying, depending on your mood. I think as a debut Silver Age comic, it's, it's really, really good. Uh, I enjoy it a lot. Um, Bill Everett's art's fantastic. However, as detailed in Marvel Comics The Untold Story by Sean Howe, Bill Everett struggled to complete the issue on time and only got around two-thirds of the way through before Steve Ditko, the co-creator of Spider-Man, had to finish it. As a result, Joe Orlando, who's going to feature quite a bit in this, took over from the second issue and stayed on to issue four. He, in Howe's book, states that The problem was that I wasn't Jack Kirby. Jack or Ditko or just a couple of others could take a couple of sentences of plot and bring in 20 pages that stank of dialogue in an afternoon or two. When I drew out the story my way, Stan would go over it and say, this panel needs to be changed and this whole page needs to be changed and so on. I didn't plot it out the way he wanted the story told, so wound up drawing at least half of every story twice. They weren't paying me enough for that, so I quit. Um, so the two people that Orlando mentions in that quote is Steve Ditko, who, as mentioned, is the co-creator of Spider-Man, and Jack Kirby, who essentially created every other character in the Marvel Universe. Um, they would both get screwed over by Marvel and Stan Lee, Stan Lee being the writer that we're talking about who in later life would appear in all the Marvel movies. He's the guy with the tash who would cameo. The system Joe Orlando is describing here is referred to as the Marvel method in which Stan, the writer, would meet with the artist and have a quick discussion in which they would sort of get the plot sorted. This would vary in detail. Sometimes Stan would say quite a lot. Other other times it seems like he would maybe even just say the name of a villain. And I'm pretty sure for Jack Kirby sometimes, Jack Kirby just went off and did it. The artist would then go away, plot the story, draw it... I think sometimes they would write the speech and then Stan would take those comics, punch up the dialogue, sort of add his Stanley-isms, and he would go down as the writer and they would go down as the artist. There were some people who obviously liked that system, but for the most part, it seems like the artists were getting screwed a bit. So then the third artist to draw Daredevil was Wallace Wood. In a large, spiky circle that kind of looks like a sticker, I don't quite know how to describe it, on the cover of Daredevil issue 5, Stan says, Under the brilliant artistic craftsmanship of famous illustrator Wally Wood, Daredevil reaches new heights of glory. And then on the inside page, there's a large personal note thanking the previous artists, but announcing that in Wood they have found a permanent artist of sufficient stature to continue this highly praised series. My understanding is that Daredevil wasn't particularly highly praised at the time. Um, It certainly wasn't a big seller, um, was near cancellation when Wood took over, but that's Stan's obviously got to try and sell it. Um... I'm going to focus quite a bit on what Stan was saying in these issues because you can see how the, their relationship changes very, very quickly. But um, so I'm not, that might seem a bit strange that I'm not really talking about the issues and just talking about these stuff. But anyway, there's another note in the issue saying that Wally Wood had been allowed to redesign certain elements of the costume. Wood hadn't asked permission to do this, he'd just gone on and done it. These are quite slight in the first issue in terms of he's changed, so like the, there's like a V neck type thing that he turns into a, I don't know what the circular neck thing is called, I should, probably should know that. Um, he's removed some of the red tint from the glove and the shoes, although he keeps the soles red, like in a Louboutin kind of thing. 
And then he also introduces the double, D, the overlapping double D logo, which became Daredevil's logo, and the source of his nickname, DD. However, this was all minimal compared to what Wood did in issue seven. He created a completely red costume with black shadows for definition, and it's pretty much remained unchanged since issue seven of Daredevil. I mean, there's a few times when, for story purposes, they'll change it a bit. And in the 90s, I think there was a weird time where it became like metallic and spiky, but that was not a good time for anyone. So Bill Everett's costume, the sort of the yellow thing, um, I actually have a soft spot for, um, but that is kind of because it is a bit naff. Um, I mean, Wood's costume is unquestionably superior. And it's likely that without that change of costume, Daredevil would have probably got cancelled. It was that bigger sort of a deal. Um, he also did things like he created the sort of concentric circles around Daredevil's head to show his ra- radar sense, while before they'd kind of been this line following him around with pings whenever he would have hit something. Stan introduced issue 7 by saying, This epic doesn't need any hard sell. It's one of Marvel's greatest. As said earlier, Stan never missed an opportunity for hyperbole, but I think actually he's right here. Um, this is one of the greatest issues of Daredevil ever. I would say it's a perfect superhero comic, and most of it seems to me to have come from wood. So here, Daredevil goes up against Namor the Submariner, the Prince of Atlantis, who is a character that Bill Everett, the guy who illustrated the first issue of Daredevil, had created over 20 years ago. The plot's pretty simple. Namor comes to the surface world, and he wishes to sue the entire human race for depriving the people of Atlantis of their birthright. Matt, being a lawyer, explains that this isn't possible. You can't sue the whole human race. So Namor starts destroying stuff until the army was taken to court. Uh, there's a few other things that happen, but basically most of the story is Namor, who's essentially like a Superman, he's super strong and can fly, walking about, then Daredevil trying to stop him, then fighting him, and Daredevil just getting his ass handed to him. And um, I think until that point, you didn't get a strong sense of who Matt Murdock was as a character. And this is a, the f- first time where you sort of get the fact that Matt Murdock just won't give up. He's kind of got the same attitude as his dad being a boxer. And he's completely outmatched. There's no way he can beat Namor, but he's just not going to give up. So the issue ends with Daredevil completely beaten, and he's sort of just about able to lie on the floor and grab Namor's ankle. And Namor basically decides that, out of respect for the code of Daredevil, he's not going to injure any more humans, and he returns to Atlantis. Um, I don't quite know how to explain how good it is. It's just an absolute joy to read, and I think it far surpasses any other daredevil comics and most of the marvel comics coming out at that time i think it's just phenomenal however in issue 10 just three issues after wood's masterpiece stan states wally wood has always wanted to try his hand at writing a story as well as drawing it and big-hearted stan who wanted to rest anyway said okay so what follows next is anybody's guess you may like it or not but you can be sure of this it's gonna be different uh, i don't know how you read that but to me that's a little bit shady And I think that's sort of confirmed by the end of the issue where Stan ends it with Wonderful Wally decided he doesn't have time to write the conclusion next-ish and he's forgotten most of the answers we'll be needing. So Sorrowful Stan has inherited the job of tying the whole yarn together and finding a way to make it all come out in the wash. And you think you've got troubles? Doesn't take a detective to work out that something was going on behind the scenes. For issue 11, Wood's no longer doing pencils, he's just inking. And then by issue 12, he's gone. Replaced by John Romita, who is actually also fantastic however after reading those issues i clearly want to know what happened between wood and lee so after a quick google i found this quote from an interview of wood which is included in bob stewart and j michael cartron's the life and legend of wallace wood volume one so wood says i enjoyed working with stan on daredevil but for one thing i had to make up the whole story he was being paid for writing and i was being paid for drawing but he didn't have any ideas 
I'd go in for a plotting session and we'd just stare at each other until I came up with a storyline. I felt like I was writing the book, but just not being paid for writing. Then the interviewer says, you did write one issue, as I recall, and would. One, yes. I persuaded him to let me write one by myself since I was doing 99% of the writing already. I wrote it, handed it in, and he said it was hopeless. He said he'd have to rewrite it all and write the next issue himself. Well, I said I couldn't contribute to the storyline unless I got paid something for writing. And Sam said he'd look into it. But after that, he only had inking for me. Bob Powell was suddenly penciling Daredevil. And then later on the interview, uh, in reference to issue 10, Wood says that he saw it when it came out and Stan had changed five words, less than the editor usually changes. I think that was the last straw. I'll return to this, this period and Wood and Lee later in the episode, but um, having read that, I then was looking at Wood's Wikipedia page and found this about the end of his life, and this um, kind of stayed with me. For much of his adult life, Wood suffered from chronic, unexplainable headaches. In the 1970s, following bouts with alcoholism, Wood suffered from kidney failure. A stroke in 1978 caused a loss of vision in one eye. Faced with declining health and career prospects, he shot and killed himself in Los Angeles on November 2nd, 1981. Toward the end of his life, an embittered Wood would say, according to one biography, if I had to do it all over again, I'd cut off my hands. Uh, I came to Wallace Wood's work through Daredevil, and Wood's contribution to that character is immeasurable but it was definitely not the only highlight of his career. In Wood's later life, he became disillusioned with the comics industry, and there are parts of his career that point to the likes of Kirby, Siegel, and Schuster, who were the titans of comics who got screwed over, while other setbacks in Wood's career appear to have come as a result of his own self-destruction. So for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to go through Wood's life, explaining the important moments and his important works. Most of the biographical details from his life are from Steve Starger and J. David Spurlock's Wally's World, The Brilliant Life and Tragic Death of Wally Wood, the world's second best comic artist. I'll try and use my quotey voice when I'm uh, directly quoting from them, but for the most part, the biographical details are from that book. There's a couple of other books that I use to do make specific points, but I'll uh, mention those when I get to them. So, here we go. Wallace Allen Wood was born on the 17th of June 1927 in Monaga, North Minnesota, the youngest of two brothers. If you're like me and not good with dates and places, 1927 is a year after the Queen was born, and Monaga is about a two-hour drive from Fargo, if you've seen the film or the TV series. So two facts about Monaga. So Monaga is the Ojibwe word for there are many blueberries, and was home to the Sioux and Ojibwe before the Europeans stole their land. Up to present day, the 2020 census has the population at 1,333, so that's less than 400 families. Uh, on the Wikipedia page, Wally Wood and college basketball head coach Don Monson are the only names in the notable residence section. Uh, going back a bit, Wood's maternal grandparents both immigrated to America from Sweden, but it was in America that they met and they married. They had three sons and seven daughters. Uh, one of the daughters was Wood's mother, Alma, who was born on the 5th of March, 1895. She was probably the most important person in nurturing Wally's artistic gifts. Stargard and Spurlock describe her as someone who deviated from the demeanour expected of a rural wife and mother. She tempered her hard-scrabble roots with an appreciation of art, music and culture that led to her being the only one in her family to go to college. Uh, on the other side of Wood's family, Wood's paternal grandparents eloped as his grandmother's parents wouldn't allow her to marry a ranch hand. They had six children, one of whom was Max Wally's father. Stargren and Spurlock state that Max compensated for his average physical build with a self-centred competitive nature he was skilled in hunting and fishing, and he possessed an unyielding nature that made it hard for him to give up control, even in the most insignificant situations. 
Max Wood constructed himself as a man to be respected, obeyed, and when provoked, feared. He developed a larger-than-life persona, part rogue, part macho bluster, which he mitigated with rough humour and a disarming mischievousness. Wallywood would later demonstrate elements of that unyielding nature. He was never able to take criticism, but it was clear from a young age that Wally didn't possess the masculine qualities that his father found so important. And Wally's older brother, Glenn, was much more similar to their dad. Um, they would go exploring the outdoors while Wally would stay at home being tutored by his mother, reading or drawing. Uh, so this is again from Stargrin Spurlock. His mother, Alma Lollywood, a school teacher who wrote songs and stories, paid close attention to the daily blossoming of her son's art skills. Gathering up the loose pages as he completed them, she became, in a sense, his first publisher by stitching the page together on her sewing machine. Saving newspaper strips to study his favourites, the young Wally Wood was attracted to the adventurous settings of Flash Gordon, Captain Easy and Terry and the Pirates. Under his mother's supervision, he made an easy leap from comics to reading books. His reading skills, developed outside of the classroom, enabled him to go directly from the third to the fifth grade. Max appears to have been confused and embarrassed by his youngest son, and he never let him forget that he thought of him as a wimp, a sissy and a misfit. As Wally grew older, the only part of his life that his father respected was the fact that he was popular with girls in school, much more so than his older brother. In fact, years later, Wally's first wife, Tatiana, would first go on a date with Glenn before choosing Wally after he walked her home. It may be worth mentioning here that Wood's parents' marriage ended in part due to Max's extramarital affairs. In 1944, a year before the end of World War II, 17-year-old Wally Wood was too young to be drafted, but decided to join the Merchant Marine. Stargren and Spurlock argue that Wally was likely patriotic, but that he also wished to prove himself in the eyes of his father. In early 1945, he made a convoy to Italy, an incredibly dangerous journey where the route was full of German U-boats. His second convoy took him to the Pacific Ocean, where Wood, now 18, was witness to his crewmates torture some Japanese sailors. Wood was a pulse, and his letter comics would often show the perspective of and sympathise with America's enemies, something in common in the jingoistic era in which he was working. When Wood returned home, he did not get the respect from his father he craved. Max ran a small logging operation and made a point to challenge Wood of his masculinity in front of his men. After the end of the war, Wood joined the paratroopers and was stationed in Japan for two years. In the book, there's a point made about Wally's sexual charisma and how he turned down a Japanese family who tried to set him up with his daughter. There's another earlier example of how, when he was in Italy, he had a brief affair with a girl who lived in a cave with her family. Um, I guess it's possible that these encounters were romantic, but I think it's important to consider the context of Wood being a young American soldier in American-occupied Japan and Italy. Uh, I guess if we're looking at power dynamics, they sort of couldn't be more skewed. Um, it may have been on the island of Hokkaido that Wood first gained his taste for alcohol and large-caliber handguns. Returned to America, like many soldiers, he found life back home restless. He bought a car and would spend his time driving around the countryside getting drunk. Alma wanted to give her son structure, so enrolled him in the Minneapolis School of Art. Uh, Wood did attend two classes, but quickly determined that the school would be unable to teach him anything he hadn't already taught himself. Instead, he headed to New York to work with his heroes. Uh, he moved to New York with little money or possessions and no contacts, uh, with a belief that his art was good enough for it to succeed on its own. As always seems to be the case in these stories, Wood was about to give up. He was in the waiting room to show his portfolio for the last time before he was going to head home. And in the waiting room was John Severin, who seeing Wood's portfolio and his paratroopers pin, because Severin had also been uh, in the military, they struck up a conversation and Severin basically couldn't believe that Wood hadn't been hired and took him to meet some people. Uh, this basically leads to Wood working for Will Eisner, which is like a massive deal. Will Eisner was the guy at the time and, and also he's one of Wood's heroes. So um, Wood started doing lettering on the spirits, uh, Eisner's comic, for $3 a page before moving on to backgrounds. In 1949, a year after moving to New York, Wood was drawing comics professionally. This was the period in which his insane working hours began. 
In a graphic story interview from 1973, Harry Harrison, who worked with Wood at the time on a number of romance comics and sci-fi EC, said that we'd work for two or three days straight, almost around the clock, always late trying to meet a deadline. About nine or ten at night, we'd have to take a few bennies to stay awake. We did this about once a week and we'd get pretty tired. Wally would fall asleep at the drawing board, pencil poised over a panel, then wake up a few minutes later and start drawing where he'd left off. Sometimes we get so tired behind schedule, we just ink in a whole panel from scratch, not even using a pencil. Uh, so Wood is incredibly famous for his inking. I'm not someone who is artistically minded, so I'm, I'll link to some videos where you can learn about that. Uh, after working with Harry Harrison, I think there was a bit of a crossover, but then Wood's next partner was Joe Orlando. And so Joe Orlando is the guy that I've already mentioned who was the second artist on Daredevil before Wood took over. So around 15 years before that, Wood and Orlando started renting a studio together. Uh, they were good friends and held the same accounts at different publishers, uh, often collaborating on their work. Uh, I guess most famously it would be Orlando Drawing and Wood Inking. Uh, as said, Wood was one of the greatest comic inkers who ever lived, so Orlando says, When Wally put his brush to my drawing, I was always amazed by the wonderful results. In fact, I never liked my own inking again. Wally was fascinated with how fast I could pencil. I was knocked out by his ability to make one of my scribbles look so good. Uh, both Wood and Orlando worked incredibly quickly, and they had to because the, of the page rates they were on. So they both pushed each other to work harder. Um, it was at this time that speed, caffeine and alcohol became a regular part of Wood's life again. Stargrind Spurlock gave an anecdote about how Joe Orlando bought an artist mannequin for around $100, which was a lot of money for a young artist. Uh, Wood coveted the uh, dummy. So when Fox Publications went bankrupt and owed Orlando about $5,000, Orlando left the comics industry and took a day job wrapping packages in a handbag factory. And he gave Wood the mannequin in lieu of rent. Uh, Wood eventually managed to convince Orlando to come back to comics and Orlando wanted to buy the mannequin back. I think he offered even twice as much. But Wally just laughed and told him, it's mine, I got it. Like a kid teasing his friend over a rare baseball card. So in this period, Orlando and Wood and also Wood and Harrison did work for EC. So I'll give a little background about EC Comics. So in 1944, Max Gaines sold his shares of All American Publications, the comic book company he formed in 1938. He saw the superhero fad coming to an end and wanted to move to children's books. Um, so he maintained the rights for picture stories from the Bible and gave up the rights to some characters you've probably never heard of called The Flash, Green Lantern and Wonder Woman. Gaines was kind of correct because superheroes did lose their cultural capital after the end of World War II, but obviously since then they made a resurgence. So with picture stories from the Bible, Max founded EC Comics, which originally stood for Educating Comics, which shows his intention of how he wanted to use the medium, uh, but soon changed the name to Entertaining Comics. In 1947, three years later, Max Gaines died in a motorboat accident, and so ownership passed to his son, Bill, who was 25 years old at the time. Uh, Bill hated comics, possibly as a result of the fact that his father was physically and emotionally abusive, but eventually Bill's mother convinced him to take over the company, and so he abandoned his plans of becoming a chemistry teacher. The children's and educational comics weren't selling, so Sol Cohen, EC's business manager, started releasing crime comics, westerns and romances. And it was these that made Bill come around to the idea of getting into comic books. Uh, jumping forward a bit, in 1952, Gaines published the first issue of his most famous comic, Mad, which would later become Mad Magazine. Uh, so back in 1950, Wood, alongside Harry Harrison, convinced Gaines to start two science fiction comics, Weird Science and Weird Fantasy. Uh, Wood, I think, would work pretty much on every title that EC made across the board, but he's most famous for his science fiction. Uh, John Workman says that no one could draw the cramped quarters of a spaceship the way Wood did. The creatures the intrepid Earthmen always ran into, whether cuddly, cute, or savagely menacing, were always authentic. No other cartoonist could pour so shapely a heroine into her tight-fitting spacesuit. 
Uh, I'm currently reading Wood's EC sci-fi stories and wanted to have something new and interesting to say about them. But essentially, what everyone else has said is the same as what John Workman says, and they're all right. I mean, nobody could draw technology like Wood. If you've not seen any of his sci-fi work, just go and Google it now. It's just incredibly impressive. Um, I've actually found the stories to be genuinely un- unsettling, which I didn't expect them to be. And a lot of that is because of the way that you feel reading about these spaceships or being in, uh, in space or on these planets. Um, and that's all through Wood's art. Um, you may also expect the technology to feel dated because this is from the 50s. And I guess it does in some ways, but it just all feels like it should work. There's like a tactile quality to it, which makes it feel timeless. Um, he just puts so much detail into the backgrounds. Basically, if you take anything away from this, Wood is one of the greatest sci-fi artists of all time, if not the, and his name should be synonymous with the genre. Uh, the stories I've been reading all have a twist ending. Um, and once you know the formula, they're pretty easy to see coming. For example, there's one in which a scientist experiments on guinea pigs. So in the end, he gets captured by some aliens who then experiments on him. And that's the standard formula. Um, but with Wood's art, they're still effective and, like I said, unsettling. Um, I would sort of say they're like a 1950s Black Mirror, but I think that's probably a horrible comparison and one that would make me groan if anyone else said it, but that's what I'm going to say. Maybe the most famous Wood sci-fi story is My World, published in Weird Science 22, cover date November-December 1953. Uh, there's no plot as such, just a narrator explaining their world, their sort of sci-fi universe, with each panel showing a different exciting sci-fi plot. So that's dinosaurs, spaceships, futuristic cities, aliens, some friendly, some not, a fist fight on a spaceship, uh, a sci-fi version of the sirens with a man entranced by alien women playing a harp. Um, Every other panel begins with my world is, and then a description uh, that was written by Al Feldstein. Um, It ends with a panel of wood at his desk drawing the page that you're looking at. So you get uh, an image of wood drawn by wood. Um, again, this just shows Wood's importance because not only is his name on the comics, but he's actually in the story. Uh, the narration by Al Feldstein in the final panel says, My world is the world of science fiction, conceived in my mind and placed upon paper with pencil and ink and brush and sweat and a great deal of love for my world, for I'm a science fiction artist. My name is Wood. Uh, so Wood used a lot of different techniques to create his vision, particularly in my world. So Ben Saunders in his essay, Making My World, explain some of the techniques used in the comic. Uh, A lot of this goes over my head, so this next bit is just for anyone who's artistically and technically minded. If if you're not either of those things, like I'm not, this is just going to be gobbledygook. So page one of my world is one of the few pages in Wood's EC canon rendered entirely on duotone board. Duotone was a chemically treated paper overlaid with a hidden pattern that became visible when painted with a particular developing fluid. Two types of fluid were available. One revealed fine cross-hatched lines for a darker grey tone, the other revealed a pattern of parallel diagonal lines producing a lighter grey tone. The results have a smooth, fluid quality that is easily mistaken for ink wash, but the fine lines that actually make up those tones were more suitable for prints. Uh, despite it being more suitable for prints, Saunders actually points out that because of the printing process, there's a degree of sophistication lost in the v- comics that people would have received, and so it's more impressive to see the original artwork, and that's all online. For a panel of astronauts exploring a new planet, Wood reverts to the regular surface of his Bristol board, creating his implied grey tones with multiple sheets of zipper tone, a product that printed patterns of dots or other shapes on transparent sheets, adhesive on one side. These sheets could be cut into precise shapes with a sharp blade and then stuck on the surface of the board. Here, Wood uses a tone that progresses from lighter to heavier density for the rocks in the middle distance, then a lighter pan for the rocks further in the background, and perhaps even a third sheet of tone for the standing puddles in the lower left corner, underpainted with streaks of black ink to create the illusion of surface refraction. 
So Saunders goes through all the different panels and the different techniques used, and then we end up with the final panel, with its famous self-portrait, is one of the four panels of the story where Wood reverts to the basic technique of brush, ink, and hand-drawn cross-hatched lines, almost as if the artist were ending his visual symphony with a deliberate return to the most simple and basic compositional elements. Uh, what's also worth noting is that Wood was still on a page rate, and so there was no financial incentive for him to put in this extra work, uh, although counter to that, he would have been on a really good page rate at this point, maybe the highest, I think, I think the highest at EC, if not maybe the highest in the whole comics industry in America, like he was, Wood was the guy at this point. Al Malali Wood tried to instill a sense of social consciousness in her son, however, whether it came from her or from Wally, there was a blind spot in his education. Wood would explain to his EC colleague Al Williamson that he held racist views as a teenager, but that his attitude had changed completely from working with black mariners in the Merchant Marine. I found a couple of anecdotes and biographical details that suggest this was true. Most, maybe most notably the fact that Wood's third wife Muriel was black, um, but I don't want to sort of present this as a top trump card to suggest that Wood was completely about prejudice. I mean, he had he got married three times to three women and he still held sexist views. So I don't know why the same couldn't apply for race. Uh, most damningly, on a 1959 Mad Magazine getaway to the island of St. Thomas, Stargrid Spurlock state that there were reports that Wally made numerous anti-Semitic remarks and that this was a shock to everyone as it was so contrary to Wood's steadfast liberal stance. This is especially disappointing considering how, by Wood's own account, the experience of having black colleagues was enough for Wood to change his opinion completely, but that he still made these anti-Semitic comments despite so many of his comics heroes and colleagues being Jewish, and the fact that his first wife Tatiana had to leave Germany because of anti-Semitism and the Nazi party. I raise it all here because I'm about to discuss the preachies that Wood drew for EC, uh, when I first heard the term preachy, I thought it was a derisive term, you know, like how um, twats today will refer to, I don't know, comics or stuff as woke or social justice warrior and mean that negatively. Um, but this was an affectionate term that I think came from Bill Gaines himself. Um, so I guess it's impossible to know exactly how Wood felt, but we can still explore the ways in which his EC work presents the ideals of civil rights and social equality in 1950s America. EC's comic Shock Suspense Stories began in 1952, and was designed to include four different genres of stories, so a science fiction, a horror, a crime, and a war story. So these are all popular in other EC books. Um, and then all these stories would have the trademark EC shock ending. The war story was replaced with a message story, or preachy, in the second issue. Uh, the message stories would often tackle subjects such as racism, anti-Semitism, anti-communist witch hunting, police corruption and brutality, mob hysteria, rape, and drug addiction. It was, according to Tommy Burns, through the message stories, that were illustrated almost exclusively by Wood that shock suspense stories assumed its unique identity. Uh, to look at the Pruchies, I'm going to focus on Kiana Wittard's book, EC Comics, Race, Shock and Social Protest. Uh, this book explores the techniques used in these books to elicit a response from its majority young white male readership and encourage them to challenge the moral authority of parents and closed minor communities or even stand up against the nation's unjust laws. I originally had so many quotes from this book that it's always going to take over the whole podcast, so I hope that the stuff that I've left out means that I'm just, uh, I guess, condensing what Witted is saying rather than um, misrepresenting it, so I hope that's the case. But I am going to start off with a long quote. So she describes the preachies as a distinct group of EC stories designed to challenge readers' assumptions about racial, ethnic, and religious prejudice, Cold War paranoia, and other anxieties over social difference and American heterogeneity. The preachies are cautionary, discomforting, and often quite grim. Many rely on an extra diegetic narrator to drive home the lessons signalled by the exclamatory titles such as Hate and the Guilty. Critics of the preachies do not hesitate to characterise the stories as ham-fisted and overly didactic, while admirers speak just as effusively of the guts it took to print them. 
Their surprise plot twists tend to underscore the deep moral failings of the status quo through acts of violence and depravity that reflect the contradictions of the post-World War II era known as both the fabulous 50s and the age of anxiety. During this period, scientific innovations generated life-saving vaccines even as the United States and Russia tested hydrogen bombs that threatened mutual annihilation. The nation could boast of progress in industry and technology, along with extraordinary levels of economic consumption, but the prosperity also encouraged white American families to become more insular and complacent about the needs for societal change. So Witt and Howe in both their books mentioned the controversial story Foul Play, uh, in which a group of murderers use their victim's corpse to play baseball, so they use his intestines to mark the baseline, his heart as home plate, and the batter uses his legs and arms to hit the ball, which is the victim's head. Obviously, that's very extreme, and that was from an EC horror comic, so that appeared in Haunt of Fear 19. But that's got like a real over-the-top slasher movie quality to it. The EC preachies are much closer to reality, and the stories often involve, as I said earlier, racial violence. Um, so they're upsetting us with their intention, so I'm just raising that here. Wood's first preachy appeared in Shock Suspense Stories 3, uh, cover date June-July 1952. So the story's called The Guilty, uh, which, like most of the preachies, was written by Al Feldstein. Wood draws the title Dripping in Blood, and we follow the blood down to a panel showing an angry white mob awaiting the sheriff outside a jailhouse. Aubrey Collins, a black man, is suspected of having killed a white woman based on flimsy evidence. Tommy Burns states that Wood's art is cooperatively dark and heavy, the mob's face is hard and ugly, and he renders the sheriff as an ugly, misshapen, cigar-chomping pig. Witted points out that Wood draws the farmers in overalls and the businessmen in suits to suggest that the privileges of whiteness cut across socioeconomic class. On the way to the trial, the sheriff stops the car and orders Collins to run at gunpoint. As he does, the sheriff shoots him in the back of the head. The deceased Collins is proved to be innocent, and the story ends with the following message. Whether Aubrey Collins was innocent or guilty is not important, but for any American to have so little regard for the life and rights of any other American is a debasement of the principles of the Constitution upon which our country is founded. Uh, most of the preachers would end like this with a moral, explicitly telling the audience how they should feel, uh, Gaines and Feldstein believe that the captions and the dialogue for this reason were the most important aspects of the preachies. Uh, for example, in this story, Witted points out how the narrator directly challenges readers to consider how their own lives intersect with the cruelty and intolerance illustrated on the page uh, by pointing out that this story could have happened in your town. Uh, however, these weren't perfect representations. Witted complicates this in many ways, notably stating how most of the black characters don't speak. Uh, it might even be all the black characters don't speak in the preachies. Um, however, for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to be focusing on Wood's art rather than the story and the dialogue. Uh, this was a time in which Witted states, Minstrel caricatures continued to dominate mass representations of blackness in everything from song and board games to soap advertisements. Comic art was often the most egregious offender. By contrast, in The Guilty, Aubrey Collins is portrayed in defiance of racial typography. He's a lean African-American man of average height, dressed plainly in cuff blue jeans and a white shirt. Colorist Marie Severin adds medium brown tones to the heavily inked figure, with a slightly darker shade for the tight curls of his hair. His body is contoured in the deep shadows and expressive lines that distinguish Wood's style, but it does not appear ominous. In the monochromatic blue scenes that emphasise his facial features, the eyelids, nose and lips are delineated without exaggeration. Collins does not appear in every scene, but when he does appear, he is drawn as realistically as white characters. Uh, it goes on to state that EC's approach to portraying the complexities of black identity matured in subtle but important ways in the years that followed the publication of The Guilty, so that story that we're talking about. Uh, this is reflected by Burns, who states that in Gratitude, which is the name of the story, from Shock Suspense Stories 11, which has a cover date of October-November 1953, it's perhaps the most masterfully crafted preacher of them all. Confronting both racial prejudice and blind patriotism, Ingratitude is told without heavy-handedness, without cynical irony, without a closing sermon at the end. 
So in that story, Joey, a white soldier, returns home from war without an arm, and he has a gleaming metal clamp in its place. He has to be taken to his friend Hank's grave. We learn by flashback that Hank saved Joey's life by jumping on a grenade. Hank had no family, so Joey asked him to be buried on the family's plot. Because Hank was black, Joey's parents couldn't do it, and they buried him elsewhere. So, Ingratitude is seven pages long, and the last two pages are taken up with a speech from Joey to his community, explaining how he's ashamed of them. Um, for Wittard, shame is the face of justice in the EC preachies. With few exceptions, the message comics drew deeply on individual and collective acts of public shaming and stressed the sentimental invocation of related emotions such as disgrace, humiliation and guilt in their plea to improve social standards. So obviously, having the character directly address the audience and having the moral in the text is doing that job, but it's also being done through Wood's art. So many of the preachers end with Wood expressing characters experiencing shame through drawing bowed heads, slumped shoulders and having them in tears. This representation of shame, Whitted argues, visually undermines the authority of white people who espouse racist attitudes. Whitted then quotes the cognitive analysis of the scholar Karen Kekkonen. When we see a character do something in a panel, the process in our brain unfolds something like an imitation of these postures in motor sensory systems, which prepare the action, but do not lead us to actually perform it, and we feel an echo of the character's experience. So... I think the idea that the reader is able to feel emotions through the depiction of people in comics shows the importance of Wood's art in conveying the messages of the preachies. So it definitely wasn't just through the words of Gaines and Feldstein. As stated, anti-black racism wasn't the only prejudice explored, but it was the most common in the preachies. I was going to list a few of the plots with different prejudices, but I don't really have any analysis for them, and actually listing them back to back without any analysis is pretty harrowing. However, if you're interested in finding out more, the plots are all listed on the Shock Suspense Stories Wikipedia page. I'll finish this section by mentioning the story Perimeter, published in the January 1954 issue of Frontline Combat, which was actually the last issue of Frontline Combat, it's an EC comic. Uh, the reason why I bring this book up is because it was written, penciled and inked by Wood, so Marie Severin still does the colours. Um, Witten argues that this story, following an American military unit in the Korean War, breaks the tradition of silent, passive black characters who die in order to teach the white reader compassion. Here, Private J. Matthews is frequently pictured at the centre of the three main characters, or in the foreground. He speaks often and demands mutual respect among his fellow soldiers. He also appears on the cover of Frontline Combat 15, with the three other white soldiers. He's not the main focus, but he is on the cover. Um, this was, according to Gerald Early, a startling moment in American comics, as black characters outside of stereotypes or caricatures were never seen on the covers in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, Witt's research shows that this is the only EC comic to feature a heroic black character on the front cover. She says that Wood's image is a rare testament of Matthew's value in the story as an individual whose aspirations, fears and complex relationship with the other characters are indispensable to the plot's development. In 1954, with McCarthyism in full swing, Dr. Frederick Wertham began a crusade to protect the nation's youth from crime and moral corruption. He published his now notorious, then popular book, Seduction of the Innocent, The Influence of Comic Books on Today's Youth, which basically blamed comic books for every juvenile criminal or kids engaging in any activity that he deemed perverse. Uh, you can listen to him on YouTube. It's, it's quite scary and also kind of funny. Um, Senator Estefas Kiforfa moved away from looking at organised crime to be a part of the US Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency. When the subcommittee turned to look at comic books, Dr. Verfham was the expert witness. Sean Howe details how EC comics were an easy target. While their tales embraced outsiderism and railed against the hypocrisies of conformist American society, they did contain vile scenes. And in particular, Wertham wasn't a fan of the story mentioned earlier with the murders using the victim's corpse to play baseball. Uh, another piece of evidence that Wertham used was the cover to Crime Suspense Stories 22. 
Um, just to be clear, the Preachies were in shock suspense stories, so this is a different comic, crime suspense stories, still published by C. In the foreground of the cover, we see a figure from the shoulders down. They're holding a bloody axe in one hand and a decapitated woman's head by its hair in the other. In the background, we can see her legs. Do you think this is in good taste? Senator Estevez Kiforfa of Tennessee asked Gaines. Yes, sir, I do. For the cover of a horror comic, Gaines replied. Gaines' testimony made the front page of the New York Times. Uh, he tried to make some arguments about what would have made that cover to be in bad taste, such as the fact that you can't see the point at which the neck has been cut off, so you don't see any blood or bone. Um, but it's just an impossible argument to make in this setting, and in a time where Cold War-era brainwashing was a source of moral panic. Verham, much to Gaines' distaste, presented an isolated section from the Preachies, bringing people's attention to the violence and the slurs used, but did not contextualise them into what Gaines and EC were trying to achieve. Uh, they then tried to twist what Gaines was saying about the idea that you could present a message in comics to be the idea that you could tell kids to, I don't know, go and kill people. So, um, Beezer. Yet why do you say you cannot at the same time and in the same manner use the pages of your magazine to get a message which would affect children adversely? That is, to have an effect upon their doing these deeds of violence or sadism, whatever is depicted. Gaines. Because no message is being given to them. In other words, when we write a story with a message, it is deliberately written in a way that the message, as I say, is spelled out carefully in the captions. Plus the fact our readers by this time know that in each issue of Shock Suspense Stories, the second of the four stories will be this type of story. Beezer. A message can be getting across without spelling out in that detail. For example, take this case that was presented this morning of a child who was in a foster home who became a werewolf and foster parents. Gaines, that was our story. Beza, a child who killed her mother. Do you think that would have any effect at all on a child who is in a foster placement, who is with foster parents, who has fears? Do you not think that child in reading the story would have some of the normal fears which a child has, some of the normal anxieties tightened, increased? Gaines, I honestly can say I don't think so. No message has been spelled out there. We were not trying to prove anything with that story. None of the captions said anything like, if you are unhappy with your stepmother, shoot her. Gaines' arguments fell on deaf ears. How continues. In the summer of 1954, 15 comic publishers went out of business. In September, nearly all the remaining publishers formed the Comic Magazine Association of America, which instituted self-regulating rules that were modelled after Hollywood's Hayes Code, but even more draconian. According to the new Comics Code, covers could not even include the words horror or terror, under no circumstances were zombies, vampires, ghouls or werewolves permitted to appear anywhere in comics. Furthermore, and this is where the rules tipped into Orwellian, there could be no sympathy created for criminals, nor disrespect of the sanctity of marriage. Good, the rules demanded, must triumph over evil. If a book didn't have the comics code seal, distributors wouldn't touch it. Um, I think you could maybe even make a connection between that point about there being no sympathy for criminals to the first issue of Daredevil where the criminal has a heart attack and that's seen as a good thing. Um, but Back to this point, the effect on EC was disastrous. The horror and crime comics were the first to be cancelled, followed by the science fiction and the war titles. Uh, the only comic that survived was Mad, uh, and for a short amount of time, its companion book, Panic. And Mad had to become a magazine in order to avoid the comics code. So this is from Howe again. Comic books, defanged just as television sales were skyrocketing and rock and roll was beginning, lost their momentum. In the two years that followed Verfen's Crusade, the number of titles produced by the comic industry was half. Companies folded left and right. Witted's book about EC Comics begins and ends with the story Judgment Day, written by Feldstein and drawn by Wood's friend Joe Orlando, originally published in Weird Fantasy 18 in 1953. Witted says that Orlando's art was often favourably compared to Wallace Wood's, uh, which is contrary to everything else I've read, but then again, I've pretty much just been reading books about Wood written by Wood fans, so that's probably is true. So in this story, an astronaut visits a planet to determine whether they can join the Galactic Republic, the planet is inhabited by blue and orange robots who are made from the same parts. 
but the orange robots are treated to more rights and privileges than the blue robots, uh, with lots of references to 1950s America with the robots having to sit in different parts of a bus. Uh, the astronaut determines that consequently the planet cannot join the Galactic Republic, but there is hope for them as humanity used to be like them. The final panel has the astronaut back in his spaceship, removing his helmet to show that he's a black man. Uh, firstly, I'll mention the link to Wood here because that's who we're talking about. So Orlando stated that, I remember I really felt elated because I'd just done Judgment Day and I rendered a black man at the end of the story, a really great head. When Wally saw that, he called me up because he'd just done a story of a black person. I said his was just a white person with dark colour. Look at the head I just did. That's a black guy. And Wally had to admit that and he cursed me out. So Witted agrees with Orlando's assessment, but notes that the aim of Wood's preaches was different and that his stories were designed to grapple with the concept of blackness in the white imagination. And so, whether intended or not, the visual choices of Wood's comics align with Felstein's script to unmark the stigma of otherness and counter more stereotypical representation of black people. So that's a more positive way of looking at it than just saying that Wood's drawing was shittier. But however, the main reason why I bring this up is because EC tried to republish the story Judgment Day in a different comic, and this was after the Comics Code had been set up, and basically the Comics Code tried to stop them, seemingly just because the astronaut was black, which obviously is the point of the story. So Gaines and Feldstein shouted a fuck you down the phone to the Comics Code before hanging up, and they would eventually just publish the comic uncensored. However, I think the most damning indictment of the Comic Code comes from Tommy Burns, who states that EC tried gamely to carry on the suspense story tradition with their new direction title Impact, but a story preaching racial tolerance and human understanding would be impossible in the era of the Comics Code authority. Wood was really angry about the censorship and continued to work at Mad Magazine after all the other comics were cancelled. And he was a really important artist there and did loads of great work. So this is a, probably the, the biggest hole in the podcast is the fact that I don't have any information about his mad stuff. However, then two years later in October 1956, DC Comics created a new version of their superhero, The Flash. This was the first new superhero comic since they'd lost their popularity after the Second World War. Um, and uh, so obviously this is the start of the change that was coming that was going to, well, affected pretty much all mainstream culture today. In 1957, Hugh Hefner published the glossy magazine Trump, which was basically a fancier version of Mad, and the idea was to steal Mad staff to kill the competition, so Harvey Kurtzman had left Mad and he became the editor, and Will Elder and Jack Davis followed, so that's pretty much all the heavy hitters at Mad Bar Wood. Uh, Wood did do some work for Trump, but refused to leave Mad because he wouldn't turn his back on Gaines, because Gaines was a good guy. As I said earlier, he uh, would give the artists and the writers credit, he'd always pay on time, uh, they took uh, people on yearly trips. There's one on the Wikipedia page where they talk about how they took a staff trip to Haiti because there was one subscriber there. So all the staff drove to his house to give him his renewal card. Uh, the man's neighbour then bought a subscription, so Gaines called the trip a success as they doubled the circulation in Haiti. However, after essentially saving Mad, uh, Wood came to feel that he was being taken advantage of, and this sort of came to a head when he was told to no longer hand his work into Al Feldstein, but to Nick Meglin, the assistant, who Wood thought of as just like this kid. So this is from Stargar and Spurlock. So they say that by 1959, pressure was building and a mad cruise to St. Thomas proved disastrous for him. This is him being Wood. Rum was cheap in the islands, a fact that Wood embraced wholeheartedly. When he arrived in St. Thomas, he dove into the rum bottle headfirst and didn't come up until he was falling down drunk. Ultimately, to stop him, his colleagues locked Wood in his hotel room, only to later find out that Sly Imp had escaped out the window. Uh, the missing artist would later be dumped from a truck full of locals in front of his hotel like a 50-pound sack of potatoes, beaten black, blue, purple and green. The rum-soaked mariner never divulged what had happened. Perhaps he didn't even know. It was also on this trip that Wood made those anti-Semitic comments that I spoke about earlier. In 1960, Wood experienced what his wife Tatiana referred to as the year of the headache, as to say that he had headaches is not correct, because it was a headache all the time. He got up with it and went to bed with it. 
No doctor was able to find the cause of Wood's consistent debilitating headache or relieve the pain. At New York Hospital, he was given an experimental unnamed drug, likely antidepressants. They didn't cure his headaches, but Wood became addicted to them. Tatiana said that he kept refilling prescriptions by opening up accounts at different drugstores and that he became a zombie. Wood's work became riddled with mistakes and there's been uh, some people have said that his work at MAD became less funny. The Pill Year, 1961, was also the year that Stan Lee decided to change the name of Timely Comics. Marvel Comics was born. So this is a long quote from Stargrin and Spurlock. So they say that Wally wouldn't sleep for four or five days in a kind of exaggeration of his typical working schedule. The only positive thing throughout this period was that Wally wasn't drinking very much. The headaches continued, even through the pill year. Desperate, Wally decided to try therapy, or analysis, to use a trendy term of the period, in 1964. For about three years, Wally went to therapy sessions and felt that they helped. The headaches would diminish periodically, but never totally went away. As sessions with the psychologist continued, Wood discovered that he was injuring his hand a lot because he would pound his desk as repressed anger began to surface and overflow. During his therapy and headache treatments, he began to drink heavily again, and Wally's relationship with Tatiana began to fray. Sometimes, when he was drunk, he would lock himself in the bathroom and threaten suicide. Through it all, however, Tatiana maintains that Wally never abused her physically. In 1963, Wally and Tatiana made a trip to Duluth, Minnesota, to see Wood's father, who was dying from a bleeding ulcer. Wally hadn't seen his father in 16 years. Uh, while in Duluth, Tatiana felt that Wood appeared to be feeling better and that he'd perked up, which Stargrin and Spurlock see as giving more credence to the idea that it was pressures related to his working at MAD, or more specifically, that he was somehow taken advantage of there that was a prime cause of his torment. Max Wood died in March 1963. Wally did not attend the funeral. After working for MAD for 12 years, Wood left in 1964. The common story is that Alf Eldstein rejected one of Wood's stories, and Wood, unable to take criticism, stormed out. Feldstein states that Wally had difficulty with deadlines. It might have been because of his mood swings. Maybe his drinking got in the way. I was a vigorous professional. Wally was too, but he had personal problems. In the beginning, he kept them under control. And Paul Kirshner, one of Wood's assistants years later, said that he actually admitted to me that the reason he got fired from MAD was due to a self-destructive act. He owned up to it. He said, I turned in a job so bad, I knew they wouldn't be able to accept it. Then I got mad when they didn't accept it and stormed out. Whatever the reason, when the Daredevil gig appeared, a sober Wood needed money. So that brings us up to where we began, but before we return to Marvel, I just want to take a moment to talk about Tatiana. So she was born Tatiana Weintraub on the 2nd of March 1926, so just over a year before Wally in Darmstadt, Germany. Her mother was a Lutheran, which is a branch of Protestantism, and her father was Jewish. Therefore, as a result of the increasing anti-Semitism in Germany in the late 1930s, Tatiana and her brother were sent to a boarding school in the Netherlands ran by Quakers, where they stayed until the end of the war. In 1947, at 21 years old, Tatiana boarded the RMS Queen Mary and headed to New York, where she had a job lined up as a trainee dressmaker. And in her spare time, she liked to listen to classical music and went to the movies. It was two years later that she met Glenn and Wally at a dance. And a year on from that, she moved in with Wally. And on August 28th, 1950, they made a spur-of-the-moment decision to get married, which was so spur-of-the-moment that the ceremony was witnessed by two strangers. Often being the only woman amongst a lot of male comic book artists, Tatiana had to put with a lot of shit. One time in Wood's studio, a background artist groped her, and in response to the sexual assault, she pushed him so hard that he almost fell out of a window. Uh, after Wood and Tatiana were married, Wally's studio was moved to their home, and Tatiana was expected to sort of fulfil a domestic role, and so she would often sleep late just to avoid all the people in her home. Uh, during the 1950s, Tatiana began to help Wally with his work. Stargo and Spurlock state that little by little, she started to ink backgrounds. I think she'd started off originally uh, erasing his pencils. 
and there's also one issue where she drew some animals in the background and by her own account she developed a good steady hand with a brush i'm skipping over many years now but in 1967 so seven years after the headache year uh wally picked up tatiana from the airport after she returned from seeing her mother in germany and he told her that he'd moved his studio out of the apartment but he would continue to live there um sometime in the future he then basically just called her to tell her that he'd gotten a divorce so tatiana says he was chicken about it there were no signs it came out of the blue and I think she believed that he had had at least one affair. Uh, after the end of their marriage, Tatiana continued working in comics as a colorist, and is probably most known for the work she did at DC Comics beginning in 1969, as she won the Shazam Award for Best Colorist in 1971 and in 1974. As an introduction to her work, I'm going to link to an image from The Saga of the Swamp Thing 24 from 1984, and for anyone who doesn't know, The Swamp Thing is considered one of the best ones of American comics. And this issue was written by Alan Moore, penciled by Steve Bazette, and inked by John Totleben, and coloured by Tatiana Wood. So the issue ends with Swamp Thing returning to his swamp, having realised, sort of come to terms with the fact that he's a plant and not a man, and he's ready to embrace his life. And we see Swamp Thing, they've got their eyes closed, uh, arms wide, looking up to the sky while the sun sets or rises in the background. And the calming mood is definitely created by the drawing, but I would argue that it's the colours that are actually doing the heavy lifting here. Um, again, I'm not very knowledgeable about colouring, but her work is really effective. And if you want any indication of the importance of colour, there's been some horrible recolourings of Swamp Thing since then. I'm not quite sure of the reasons why it happens. I think it's because the original work was done on different paper, I think on newsprint paper, and the printing process were different. So sometimes old comics get recoloured, um, which is a shame, especially because we're now sort of if that's the main way in which people are going to read this work now in these sort of printed hardback books, people won't see Tatiana's original colours. But um, I'll link to the recoloured version so you can see the difference between what Tatiana made and what the reprints made. And not to slag off what the new people have made, but there, there is a real palpable difference. Um, I'd, I'd just recommend you go onto Twitter and just search Tatiana Wood Swamp Thing and you'll see some of her incredible art. Um, yeah, she's someone who's not written about enough. She's really fantastic. But... Um, now we're going to return to Wallace Wood and brings back to where we began. So as someone who loves the Marvel artists of the 1960s and is upset by how they were treated, uh, I can sometimes undermine Stan Lee's contributions and achievements in order to sort of balance the scales. I sort of see that he got all this sort of um, praise and he's known now from being in the films. And there was definitely a period where Marvel tried to present him as sort of the sole creator of these characters, in which he definitely wasn't. But in the case of Wood, it's important to point out Stargirl and Spurlock's assertion here that Lee was one of the few post-EC era editors who hired artists associated with the infamous line. So without him, Wood would have struggled to get any work. Um, I've also included a link to a blog post by Marvel in the Silver Age called Daredevil Hooray for Wally Wood. Uh, this presents Lee much more positively and has Wood as being unreasonable. But that's not the story we're telling here. This is a Duncan Stanley podcast. Overall, though, I would say Sean Howe's book, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, is probably the best account of that period and gives a really balanced impression of Lee. In terms of pay, comic book artist Dan Atkins said that Wood got the highest rate in the industry, $200 per page at Mad Magazine, where he was the most popular artist. When he quit Mad Magazine and went over to Marvel Comics, Marvel's starting rate at the time were $20 per page to pencil and $15 per page to ink. Out of respect to Wally, they paid him $45 per page to pencil and ink, but not the bonus money he was looking for. So obviously he's taken a dramatic drop in income, even though it's still getting more than most people at Marvel. With the release of the second series of Netflix's Daredevil TV series in 2016, the estate of Wallywood wrote a letter to Marvel and Netflix complaining that Wood was not included in the credits. 
It includes quotes from various comic book creators stating what's importance for Daredevil, and then they list nine contributions, including his design model sheets, his writing, the character trait of Daredevil not backing down, the costume, the radar sense, the logo, the character's sales. Uh, they also mention the technology in the Billy Club. They state that it was Wood who added all the technology to DD. Stan didn't like it and deleted it after Wood left, but later talents including Miller, Marvel Studios and Netflix returned to Wood's concept of technological enhancements. Stan definitely didn't like the technology. He responded to one reader who disliked the technology by saying, Want us to let you in on an inside squabble, Larry? Sturdy Stan agrees with this. He is also opposed to so much gadgetry, but Winston Wally really digs those hoaxed-up appurtenances, and being Wally's the guy who has to draw them, Stan went along with him. But we'll see how the future mail goes. If most of you want less gadgets, we'll find some way to make sure that DD's stick is a stick is a stick. Wood's contribution of the Billy Club being used as a grappling hook for Daredevil to get around the city was an inspired addition, but in my opinion, the other gadgets, such as there being a microphone and tape recorder inside, the fact it shoots pellets, and the fact that Daredevil had a radio receiver in his horns, I think that's too much, and Lee was actually right to get rid of them. Um, I can't recall them being used that much in later runs and uh, the TV series. Um, however, for the brief time that they were there, they still had that look of a classy Wallywood gadget that looked really functional. The conflict between the two men and Wood's pettiness is shown by this quote from Flo Steinberg included in Sean Howe's book. She says that, even though there were ashtrays in Stan's office, he'd, so that's Wood, would always drop ashes on Stan's carpet, and that would drive Stan bananas. So when Woody would go into Stan's office, I'd walk with him and then very deftly take away his cigarette at the last minute, and it worked a few times. But as soon as he was in Stan's office, he'd light up another one. After leaving Marvel, Wood worked for Tower Books, co-creating the superheroes of the Thunder Agents. Um, these were superheroes whose powers were technology-based, so obviously that was something that Wood liked. And it was pretty successful until it looks like there was pressure from DC and Marvel that caused them to lose their distribution deal. Sean Howe reports that at Tower Books, Wood would tell somewhat unlikely stories about Stanley sitting on a file cabinet and lording above freelancers while he threw their checks down to them. It's also at this time that Wood contributed to the rise of the underground comic by self-publishing his book Wit's End. Wood had originally wanted to call the book Etc, but that was already taken. Uh, I actually think Wit's End, spelled W-I-T-Z-E-N-D, all in lowercase, is a better title. And it's a classy name than just calling it Fuck You, which is, I think, what Wood felt. Stargo and Spurlock state that Wood conceived Wit's End as an uncensored forum for professionals, a place where artists could own the copyrights of their own works, a right traditionally ceded to the publishers. Uh, the first issue was released in 1966 and promised lots of great artists, some of whom produced works for the book, others sent work that had been published elsewhere to be included in the book, and some Wood could never get. Um, in the first few issues, important underground comics creators like Art Spiegelman, who would later go on to create Mouse, had their work included. Ditko, the co-creator of Spider-Man, uh, was also allowed to go full Ayn Rand with his character Mr. A. Ditko was an interesting man. Uh, Wits End was one of Wood's many ideas that he thought would make him rich. This didn't occur when he sold Wits End to Bill Pearson for a dollar after issue four. Uh, Wood was just a bit too early for the rise of the underground comics and this idea of comic book artists owning their work would become really important after all his generation got screwed over and it wouldn't be until the 90s that there was a mass exodus of the top marvel artists who then went on to create image comics which today allows creators to own their own work what made you decide to go into publishing wood immediately and tonelessly i got tired of seeing my work turn to shit in 1968 wood would create sally forth which was published first in military news and later in overseas weekly which is a newspaper distributed exclusively to military bases around the world Sally Forth as a character was in the military, but through contrived plot reasons, uh, I guess sometimes it wasn't even plot reasons, but basically her clothes would always, she'd always lose her clothes, and this would often be a way in which they could distract the enemy. Um, over ten years later, Wood would return to the character for the first issue of his comic Gangbang, 
the cover has a woman walking on her husband having sex and the woman says so i thought you were going to see an old army buddy and then he responds with hi dear this is my old army buddy meet sally forth um, I'm going to get into his porn comic shortly, but if you're specifically interested in learning about issue one of Gangbang, which I don't know why you would be, it's not very good, the podcast Cosmic Treadmill did a whole episode on it, which I'll link to. But returning to 1969, also in Overseas Weekly, Woodward create Cannon, and Cannon is the character's last name, and he's basically James Bond on steroids. And by saying that, I don't mean that the actual dude is massive, I mean that just all the elements that you expect from James Bond are just done in a bigger, more bombastic way. I think this YouTube comment from Amron Fortis in a video by Myrtle Mystic about the recently released hardcover reprint of Canon sums it up best. So, I bought and read this exact book and I thought it was the most legitimately hilarious spy satire ever seen. The absolutely over-the-top plots, constantly nude women and ridiculously grizzled intense main character had me laughing my ass off. I honestly thought it was a brilliant parody. Little did I know that this was the quintessential over-the-top spy story stuff and an unintentional self-parody. I still love it nonetheless. Uh, like a lot of the wood stuff, there's some controversial and problematic elements to unpick in canon, um, and I'm not quite sure how and whether those concerns are muddied by the purpose of the comic to entertain and arouse servicemen, but it's undeniable that the artwork in canon is stunning. Wood also had another brief stint at Marvel between 1970 and 1971, but fought with Lee again and so left. In 1972, his mother uh, died of a massive stroke at the age of 77, and Wally did return to Monaga to attend her funeral. Later that year, I don't quite understand how, but somehow Wood was hired to ink the first issue of The Cat, one of three new female characters that Stan Lee had created with the intention of getting a female audience. How explains that Wood sent back Marie Severin's pencil art, so Marie Severin was who was doing his colours on the EC preachies. So Wood sent back Marie Severin's pencil art with the heroine's clothes completely removed, and Severin, who'd had more than her fill of boys club shenanigans over the years, had to white out the cat's nipples and pubic hair. So I can't imagine that he stayed at Marvel much longer. By 1973, say Stargo and Spurlock, Wally's personal life was a mess. Besides two failed marriages and an increasing bitterness towards the comic book industry, his health had begun to deteriorate from years of abuse of alcohol, cigarettes, speed, caffeine, antidepressants, and his gruelling work habits. Now in his 40s, his blood pressure had reached dangerous levels and his eyesight had begun to fail. His high blood pressure would eventually cause severe damage to his kidneys and his eyes. Wally then suffered a transient ischemic attack, TIA, which is considered a precursor to a stroke. The attack, coupled with Wally's existing severe hypertension, damaged the blood vessels in his eyes and affected his depth perception. He no longer could put brush to paper accurately, robbing him of the wondrous inking that had made his work so distinctive. A few years later, he would uh, ask his brother for a kidney, but he turned him down after research taught him that this would diminish his own life. If Wally were well, I'd have given serious thought to an operation, Glenn said. I think a good piece of Wally's life ended when he couldn't draw anymore. Wood's friend Joe Orlando was incredibly successful at DC, and he moved up the ranks from writer to editor to vice president. Therefore, he was able to get Wood work at DC throughout the 70s. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what positional role he was in in 1976, but in that year he hired Wood as the artist on DC's new character, Power Girl. Wood felt that he wasn't getting enough attention, so he decided that for every issue of Power Girl he would increase the size of her boobs until someone told him to stop. Uh, this went unnoticed for somewhere between six to nine issues, so if you've ever wondered why Power Girl has massive boobs, that's the reason. Uh, at this point, Wood did lots of work outside of the big two and actually a lot of interesting work outside comics and in advertising. But um, the most notable comic at this period is probably The Wizard King, which was like his Tolkien-esque epic, which he sort of envisioned was going to be his masterpiece. And uh, there was talk about it turning into a film, but this didn't happen. And it seems like one of the guys who 
was working on the film with him, just stole one of his characters and put it in their film instead. So Howard Shaken, another one of Wood's assistants, says that by the time I went to work for him, which is the mid-70s, Wood was all about rage. Still phenomenally passive-aggressive, but simmering with anger at everything, unable, in my view, to accept the fact that he had created the shitstorm of his life with his own hands. In terms of his assistants, there's a really lovely um, conversation, like recorded conversation between them that's included in The Life and Legend of Wallywood Volume 2, and they tell stories about Wood's issues with alcohol and how they would deal with them, and it's, um, I think it's really beautiful, and it's sort of uh, tragic, and then some some points strangely comic, but it's just coming from uh, these people who clearly cared for and adored uh, Wood, and um, I don't think I can do them justice, but I really recommend reading those. Um, I'm now going to go sort of back to the beginning of the, well, the late 60s and 70s to look at Wood's pornographic work, which is occurring in tandem with this stuff. Um, Wood was always known for drawing sexy women, but this is the point in which that became explicit. So it was in Wit's End that Wood began to publish his softcore pornography more widely. A uh, year after the first issue of Wit's End, Wood would publish probably his most famous pornographic work, The Disney Memorial Orgy, a poster published in the May 1967 edition of The Realist. It's pretty much what you expect. It's lots of Disney characters having sex and taking drugs in this field. You can see Goofy and Minnie Mouse having sex on an old mattress. There's Tinkerbell on a table doing a striptease to Peter Pan, the Lost Boys, and Pinocchio's watching and his nose is getting bigger. Um, I mean, there's lots going on. You can also see Dumbo taking a shit on Donald Duck, but Dumbo seems pretty embarrassed and Donald Duck seems pissed off, so I don't think it's sexual, although it could be. Um, in the distance, you can see Cinderella's castle with dollar signs surrounding it. Uh, I've not had it confirmed, but I think there were claims, well, there definitely were, there were claims at the time that this was the most pirated drawing in history. Disney didn't sue the realist or Wood or anyone else involved in its creation, but there were a few unofficial versions made, one that was colorized, and someone who made one of these copies did get sued by Disney. I'll link to the image. I don't think you'll be that, well, maybe you will be, I don't think you'll be that scandalized by it. I think the internet has sort of desensitized us to all this stuff, but um, it's always enjoyable to see someone throw a middle finger up to Disney. Actually, maybe it is controversial. How old is, is Tinkerbell an adult? I thought, I don't know. And also, looking at it closer, there seems to be the seven dwarves are sort of pulling at Snow White's dress in a way that she doesn't seem pleased about. I don't know. I think there's maybe a couple of elements in it that are pretty dodgy. I mean, next to them, you've got Lady and the Tramp having sex, and they both seem to be having a great time. So it's not all uh, horrendous, but that's what it is. In his essay, Wood Screws, Paul Kirchner states that in 1973 or so, when he handed in his R-rated My Word story for Flo Steinberg's Big Apple Comics, ultimately published in September 1975, she remarked to him, little boys are going to masturbate over this. Grinning, he retorted, good, let them find out why God gave them hands. So Flo Steinberg, when we last met her, she was the Stanley's assistant who was trying to stop Wally Wood from getting his ash on Stanley's carpet. She left Marvel in 1968, the last draw being when they wouldn't give her a $5 pay rise, and she became an important figure in the American independent underground comic scene by publishing Big Apple Comics, and that's comic spelled C-O-M-I-X, which is a trend I think that started in the 60s to show that these books were for adults and independent. And I think I read something from Art Spiegelman like years ago, so this might be wrong, where he talked about the mix coming from it being a mix of art and words. A word story, My Word, was a parody of his early science fiction story My World, the one that he published for EC that we looked at earlier with the cool techniques. It's pornographic but it's mostly angry I would say. Instead of seeing the like, limited nature of Wood's imagination and exciting sci-fi universe, the narration states that New York is more than air pollution and cockroaches, more than corruption and crime, more even than littering and graffiti. New York is dog shit, 
dogs are shitting all over our streets. So in the story, we see lots of issues of sex, and most of the participants don't seem to be really enjoying it, sort of just going through the motions. We see a middle-aged couple having missionary sex while she reads a love story and he reads a newspaper, so they're not really paying attention to each other. Another panel shows a man and a woman giving each other handjobs in a cinema. There's another one where we get two individual panels where it's a woman and then a man trying to pleasure themselves orally. Uh, there's one where there's a bird man. I guess that's the only way I can describe him. He's a, like a humanoid guy with a bird's head who's bent over himself so his head's above his ass and then he lays an egg into his mouth. No, his head's below his ass and he lays an egg into his mouth. Um, so that's pretty hot. And the narrator, so Wood, talks about how art is a mysterious process by which one's fantasies enrich the lives of others and the pockets of publishers, but it's worth it for the fans. He then shows a fan lying naked on the floor with a cartoony childish face saying, do what you want with me, kick me, fuck me, shit on me, I love you. By the way, your old stuff was better. Um, so that claim about his old stuff being better was something that Wood was hearing all the time, and he was frustrated by it because he actually thought his art was better. He'd sort of streamlined his style so there was no more clutter. And then to people who would say that they missed his kind of like his old work in the shadows and such, he would say that that was just came about because whenever he made a mistake, he would just fill it in with black. Uh, Wood's anger at the comics industry is pretty clear in this story. Um, in a 1977 interview, Wood would say of American comics that there are two big companies, Marvel and DC, both of them are fascist states, and I've been trying to escape them all my life. If you look at my output, I don't think I've done too badly. I haven't done much work for them, mostly inking, just to keep bread on the table. I use them when I need them, but they have no power over me. American publishers don't care about the quality of their comics. All they care about is keeping people from saying what they want to say. They'd rather have power than do things well. Then he finishes with, I don't have anything much to add. Let's talk about communism or something. Uh, in my words, you have the same final panel that, that was in my world, where it's wood over his desk drawing the pages that you're looking at. But instead of seeing wood in this, week, this uh, version, you've got this kind of depressed looking frog alien man and he looks i mean he looks really sad called spaffon goo so ultimately i'm not quite sure what that says about wood's mental state and i've seen that image that alien guy in other places but i haven't found anything about him um and ultimately the whole thing where steinberg and wood think that people are gonna masturbate over it i mean that's i mean it'd be a very very depressing wank so i'm not quite sure what they were on about in july 2019 van de graphics published condafee erotic art of wallace wood so, and then the top review is from a M. Davies. Their review states, I was quite surprised when I received this book. Thought it was just topless and nude girlies, but instead there was explicit graphic sex nearly all the way through. Anyway, just to let you know that if you're expecting just nudity as the cover girl suggests, it's really cartoon porn. Three stars. So two people found that review helpful. Um, and it's basically this point in the mid-70s when Wood starts getting his hardcore pornography published. There's not a huge amount of writing. I couldn't find much writing at all, basically, on his pornography, which was pretty disappointing. Um, and most of the stuff I found was negative. So even Stargo and Spurlock find the word disappointing. They state that Wood soft and hardcore women may have retained the charm of the equally endowed but more visually chaste females of his mainstream work, but the dialogue and scripts that Wood supplied for their salacious adventures never rose above the level of adolescent fascination with dirty words, scatological references, and bad bathroom jokes. Anyone who stumbled on these books without having seen Wood's work in other contexts would have to conclude that the drawing, while exemplary, was shamefully wasted on such undeserving material. Some accounts of Wood's life see the fact that he ended up doing pornography as a fall from grace. Uh, I would disagree. He clearly always had a fascination with pornography. You can see that with the stuff he was doing at Marvel and DC with The Cat and Power Girl. And this goes back even further. There's an example in 1950s Playtime Cowgirl that survived where Wood submitted the art, but he'd swapped out 
one of the panels with a sort of image where the character was naked uh, and sort of as like a joke and then the then submit the correct artwork afterwards uh there lots of his assistants talk about how they'd sometimes return to the studio and find that there were just hundreds of nude photos on the walls uh there's one story so he created this character called Animan, well, I think when he was a kid, and he only finally managed to get him published in Wit's End. Uh, he's sort of obviously part animal, part man. And it was kind of like a King Kong story where in the first issue it's in his land, and then in the second issue he's in America. And I think the third issue, which never happened, he just wanted to have Animan having sex with a woman for, I think, the main woman of the story for most of it. So this was a man who definitely was thinking about sex a lot. Wood's first cover for Screw magazine was published on the 4th of July 1976. Um, I think the best cover he did for Screw was published in December of that year where it's sort of a throwback to his early stuff, where it's on a sci-fi planet, and we have a giant woman, sort of attack of the 60-foot woman type thing. And with one hand, she's raising her dress, and with the other one, she's holding a astronaut, and she's sort of moving him towards her vagina. And he's got an expression on his face, which is a mixture of sort of terror, fascination, and joy. Um, in the background, we have a classic Wood rocket ship. Uh, as I said, there's not a huge amount written about Wood's pornography, but I did find one review. This is from Matt Seneca writing for Comics Journal about the hardback book that was released last year. Um, it's not very positive, but I think it's a really fun review. Wood's actual erotic comics are stultifyingly one note. They read like the work of a preternaturally talented grade schooler who's seen his dad's playboys and knows what they look like under there, but can only refer to a few stock stag film images of what actually happens during sex. Identical slim-hipped, vacant-eyed, huge-titted female figures lie on their backs, pull their knees up to their chests, let them spread open again and again and again. As soon as the era's publishing mores allow, studs alternatively brawny and scrawny, but with identical magnum cocks, kneeling between the figures' legs like sprinters at the starting blocks, execute the same plunge again and again and again. A few different angles of rigorous thrusting splay out over a page or two. Then things conclude with a sarcastic one-liner or a brawny cock parting identical pouty lips in the same neck-up shot of what, if any of this even felt real, would be the toothiest blowjob of all time. Once in a while, someone eats a pussy for a panel or a second guy or girl appears to overlay one of the stock poses we've already seen dozens of times onto a combination of the same. It's not that eroticism requires romance or creativity or desire or affection or obsession or transgression or exploration, but Christ, it's got to have at least one of those. To say condophias masturbatory is an insult to that practice, because here there is no fantasy or build, just repetitive motion, then an end. It's a terrifying referendum on the dullness of straight male erotic life in the Playboy era, a piercing shriek for a more varied and creative imaginings of sexuality that somewhat more equal representation has brought to comics and everything else in the year since Wood's death. A trip to Pornhub or down this week's superhero new release wall provides a rainbow spectrum of diversity by comparison. In Stargirl and Spurlock's book, they feature a quote from Ralph Reese, a Woods assistant at the time, and I offer it here as a possible explanation for why Woods' pornography was disappointing. So, he was obsessed with women. He was always raving about women, in general that you couldn't figure them out, that you always had to keep them under control. If you trusted them, they would take you over. He was hung up in a very Freudian way about women. He bought all that Freud stuff lock, stock and barrel to the point that sometimes it got a little strange. With Wood's declining health, he plunged into a depression. The pace of working in comics was too great for him, but he made his money working for magazines and advertising. In 1980, Stargirl and Spurlock state, a broke Wood walked into Marvel unannounced, asking for something to ink that he could be paid for immediately. Someone handed him Frank Miller's pencil Daredevil 164, possibly having no idea how significant or ironic the choice was. Later that year, so August 1980, Wood moved to LA where he'd work on the low-quality porn parodies. Um, and I'm going to finish. This is my final quote from um, Stargirl and Spurlock's book. So, about a week before Wally killed himself, Joe Orlando received a strange package in the mail. 
There was no note and no return address, but Orlando knew immediately who had sent the object. Orlando, who hadn't seen his old friend for years, found wrapped in Wally's underwear the artist mannequin that Wally had taken from Orlando in lieu of rent at the 64th Street studio a quarter of a century earlier. Um, and I think I'm going to finish from this quote from Harvey Kurtzman. Um, so he says that Wally Wood was a workhorse, and I feel that Wally devoted himself so intensely to his work that he burned himself out. He overworked his body, that's my observation. Wally had a tension in him, an intensity that he locked away in an internal steam boiler, and I always had the feeling that Wally was capable of erupting, which he apparently did occasionally, but he had that quality of frustration and tension, and I think it ate away his insides, and the work really used him up. I think he delivered some of the finest work that was ever drawn, and I think it's to his credit that he put so much intensity into his work, a great sacrifice to himself. Actually, I'm going to try and copy the end of an EC Preachy here and say that I disagree with Kurtzman's assessment that sacrificing yourself for your work is a good thing. Uh, I've tried to think of a way to wrap up about wood, but I can't think of anything that doesn't sound trite. So instead, I'll just say, look after yourself and I hope you enjoy this episode.